0: Hey everybody, Michael here. This week on LibUX, a podcast of course about design and user experience, is the first half of an hour long talk I gave Friday, November 6th, about crafting websites using design triggers. It was online and I ripped the audio from the video, which you can watch if you prefer on LibUX.co, just search for design triggers. In this half, I introduce design triggers as a concept and the reason for being, we touch on things like anchoring, how people actually look at websites, and spoiler, it's not the F pattern, and other techniques like using reciprocity and scarcity to pimp your wares through design. Um, so I hope you find it useful, and enjoy! Enjoy! <laughs> I am thrilled to introduce to you Michael Schofield. He is a front-end developer slash librarian specializing in interaction and user experience. He writes a ton and speaks at a variety of conferences about design triggers, responsive web design, lean code, content strategy, user engagement, and pushing the live web forward. So welcome, Michael. We are thrilled to have you here today. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for making time this morning, especially if you're on some other coast than mine. Today we are going to be talking about design triggers, um, which are um, patterns, um, pat- like kind of like layout patterns that are really meant to, I don't mean to like read my slide, I promise I won't do it all the time, but they're meant to appeal to behavior and these cognitive biases that we've observed in users. And the reason being that big data and this user experience boom that is kind of blossoming in the library land right now, is providing a lot of information about how people actually use website, which designs work, which don't. And although it can be a little creepy how it's possible to use this knowledge and cobble together an effective site that is sort of designed to social engineer your users to a specific action. And for design triggers to work effectively, It requires that we approach making library websites by considering not their aesthetics but their efficacy. Does it work? This differs from whether the design functions and meaning, like, does, you know, is the carousel moving around on the website? Are people able to interact with the menu? It differs from whether even, like, the website is responsive or not. What it asks us to consider is the business use case of the web page. What does the web page exist for and whether or not that works? So this, in my, in my little quote above, you know, does a carousel turn clicks into cash? This isn't totally relevant to um, libraries specifically, um, but, you know, what what information do we present in these carousels, which really don't work anyway, but let's say they do. Is the carousel effective at promoting event and actually getting people in the door? is it effective at promoting a database and actually increasing usage? And, you know, the answer is kind of probably not, at least in that case. But that's because we know because we can plot both qualitative and quantitative data that we use to determine the measure of an overall user experience. And what we're looking at here, I'm not going to like belabor it too much, is just one of the many models that we can use in user experience design to determine the quality of a feature. This is actually called the Kano model, um, and it was made in the 80s to detect or to determine which features are valued by the customer experience, and um, there's a lot of cool things wrapped up in it. We don't have the time to go over it, but um, it basically shows that, oh, gosh, like these excitement generators, these really cool features that we put in over time, they become basic expectations, so um, it tracks like a life cycle of an application. And the reason that it's important to plot these things is that the the value of the user experience is certainly – holistic. It is easy to use. Does it have utility? Is there demonstrable need? Is it easy to navigate? Is it accessible, credible, secure, desirable, ethical? And we care because the a good user experience is good business. What we're looking at is Ben Thompson's um, aggregation theory, which describes how before the Internet, in very simplistic terms, I'm sure, but before the Internet, for businesses and organizations to really set themselves apart successfully, they had to aggregate or control two of three really broad aspects of, of a business or a brand. So before the Internet, it was really important to control both the production or the supply and the distribution to make a, to make a change, leaving... The other aspect, consumers and users, there uh, important, but really outside of the equation. What happened after the Internet was that uh, distribution became, um, for many products, specifically digital ones, um, just free. So they had to control both the production or the creation of content and the user experience. What this is showing is, like the quote says below, that good UX is a good business, and we can see this modeled in many different comparisons in the real world. Uber is far more successful than Lyft because it is easier to use. It's put They put the effort in making the user experience wholesome. Facebook is more successful than everything that is not Facebook. Airbnb is more successful than hotels um, or increasingly successful. They're the fastest-growing businesses. Again, let's just take that good UX is good for business for granted, as, again, that's another topic for a later time. But it requires that we then determine the business of the library website. Many many librarians are fairly, I'm not sure it's controversial, but many of you may feel that it is not exactly parallel to consider the library as a business, but substitute the word business for mission or whatever. Um, and what we need to do is determine the business bottom lines of why the library website exists. because. When it comes to design, we often put a lot of stock in how it looks, particularly how it looks to a very specific set of people, you know, our, our administration and our stakeholders, and not so much into the question as to whether it works. Now, user experience, as it's becoming more of a thing in libraries, as libraries are creating user experience departments or creating specific positions, we are certainly um we are certainly improving the usability of those things but after after the website becomes usable after you implement the very like first layer of ux improvements to easy picking fruit it's it's time to reconsider the function of the website in general so i wanted to take a moment since some of you are actually here and in the chat room participating um i want to take a second i just i'm curious to see what you think the business goals of your library website are. Michelle says, um, not my goal, but for others. The purpose is to gather donations. That's a good one. Allison Howard, direct people to resources and services, promote programs for students to find everything they need to do, successful research, paper writing, promote self-service. These are super good. Um, When we presented this uh, a couple days ago, the answers were a little bit more different. They were more like, They're more broad and kind of mission language, right, to alert people of our services or whatever. But, like, when I think about the business goals, I think I try to correlate the existence of the website directly to the metrics that we use to determine the success of the library, the increase or decrease of our budget. So um, these are just examples of those that I think are widely applicable in uh, the library world. And, uh, you know, being like the website exists or a page on the website exists to create more users, right, to improve the, the number of active users in the system, so increase public library registration, increase the actual use of databases and other online resources because the use of those databases determine whether or not we, A, keep them, and, you know, B, have budget, whether it's not approved, whether or not it's approved, um, in academic hierarchy or just as demonstrable use, which helps us argue increased budget for the next year. Um, Improved brand loyalty, and this is this is my kind of like lame attempt to encapsulate this need for champions that um, a couple of you already mentioned in the chat room. We need people who, in times of crises, are going to vocalize our existence. This may not be as true in academic libraries, but certainly in public libraries, and especially in the state of Florida where... I am, where each year the the state library budget, someone attempts to introduce legislation where it is zeroed out. So we need people to write our Congress folk. We need people to champion us, right? This is all just kind of like the scaffolding for the rest of this presentation where um, I just wanted to introduce the concept of design triggers and why you might use them. And now what I'm going to do is kind of um, sidestep into triggers, um, these, uh, th- th- this, these things we know about how people interact with web pages. I'm going to kind of cherry pick those that I think have wide applicable use um, and then show some examples and talk about them. But there are a ton, and at the end I'm going to make sure that you all have um, some links so that you can see how many there are. Some of them are pretty loose and might um, arguably <laughs> be common sense, but um, others are. Pretty cool. The first one that I think is um, potentially the most important, which I think it makes sense, is um, this, uh, this trigger that is referred to as anchoring. So what happened was that for um, – uh, in MIT there was a class exercise where business students were asked to write down the last two digits of their social security number. So let's say like one and four. Um, Then they were shown a few different items, you know, like a bottle of wine, some chocolate, a book, a keyboard, um, and then asked whether or not they would pay those two digits, in my case, one, four, for each item. So would you pay $14 for a box of chocolate? Would you pay $14 for a keyboard? And at the end of the exercise, each item was auctioned off. So this demonstrated um, uh, academically in research that the Social Security number value acted as an Anchor And students in the top 20% placed bids 216% higher than students in the lowest. So we can use anchoring in visual design um, and use layout strategies to intentionally draw our users' attention to one or more pieces of information that we want them to base their future decisions on. So that's the idea. It's not just draw someone's attention to this event. It's draw someone's attention to... A first a, a first impression making punch in the gut. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But, um, but I think you know it's what, what we're trying to do is set the tone for the, the following experience. Now this can be kind of difficult given what we know about how people or given, given what we know about the the declining importance of the home page in libraries and other web industries, but we should be mindful that the initial information we display on any page, and could potentially create unwanted anchoring. In this first example, this is one of the first library websites I made many moons ago. The anchoring, I think, is not uncommon to many other library websites, specifically public, that we see. But basically it's the name of the library and it's the search box. Um, And then down to the right, we have some hours and some social stuff. If you were to see this on any screen, for the most part, this is a full, uh, basically a full fold image. It detects the height of your browser and and does some of that. Um, So this is what you see. This is the first thing you see as soon as you come to the library's homepage. Contrast this with the New York Public Libraries, which this doesn't even include their header, um, because everything kind of like above this section is incredibly nondescript. Um, but what this, what, like where your eyes are drawn to, are these these exhibits, these books, the podcast, the the fact that like Ira Glass and Nancy Update are going to be featured guests. This communicates something very different from what the Bradford County Library does. Rather than the BCPL drawing attention to search, this draws attention not to the collection, but to the value that the New York Public Library provides to the community. To see kind of the first example in a different way, this is the Des Moines Public Library's website, which... um, is not dissimilar from the NYPLs in that they use kind of like a Pinterest-style grid below, but where your eyes fall intentionally is on their collection. Even their first few items at the top are collection-related, so what are you looking for, and then you have titles. Um, You do have events and stuff, but that's not where your eyes fall. These are just demonstrably different messages that are being communicated uh, about basically about what you want people to associate with your library. Is your library a collection, or is your library of cultural value? It's something like this. Um, and these can be used for anything, but this is just to illustrate the point. I also wanna take one um, opportunity to go on a brief tangent about how people read on websites. Um, just looking at this, um, do any of you recognize what the what these diagrams are? <laughs> okay, so this these diagrams represent um, two patterns that are very common They're, These are the F patterns and the Z pattern and the F pattern is arguably the most popular and it shows um, or it tries to communicate that people look at websites basically from left to right. this is presuming a left to right interface, but people look at websites at the top of the page and then their eyes fall down the left column and the bottom the middle and the bottom right are a little uh, funky. So, the Z pattern describes something similar. It's it's how people skim sites. So, it's uh it's 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 a little different than reading. Um more people actually skim than read. But the big thing that I'm trying to point out here is that these are inaccurate. These actually don't describe how people look at websites, um which is just kind of like a fallacy that we have perpetuated like sharing and stuff. What these describe are how people read long-form text. Rather, on a website, a modern website that has a lot of visual elements on it, how people read is described better with something called the Gutenberg diagram. So presuming a left-to-right reading interface, people will start in the right and they'll drift down to the bottom right. So the top right is is called a strong fallout area, but consider... Many websites uh, have login information and stuff like that up in the the top right. And consider how much stuff, if people design websites using the F pattern, how much stuff could potentially be in the bottom left. So when there's multiple visual elements on the page, so the Des Moines Public Library or the New York Public Library or all these libraries that are using Pinterest-style grids or just heavy imagery, this describes more accurately where the strong parts. Now, this actually describes above the fold. The fold is largely a myth, but, like, in this case, it's relevant. So as people scroll, this repeats itself. So if you just, like, paper these on top of one another, as people start to scroll, the primary optical area returns to the top left, etc. Anyway, I just thought it was a pretty interesting, and it was an opportunity for a little education. But anyway, so the reason that we anchor and that we want to set the tone for the rest of the experience is because we have an opportunity then to communicate um, the relative value of library services and, products. And I think this is one of the more relevant ones because price is often how people distinguish product comparisons. So like I said, a lot of people don't like that patrons will compare the library with Amazon or the library with Netflix, but that is denial. This this is how people actually function. Shoppers often have a right price in mind when they're looking to buy. So like if you're in the store, you know that like this box of spaghetti should be a dollar or less, but this box of spaghetti is $3. So there's, there's something going on here. Sale prices are always seem like a really good deal, but if you promote too much in stores, um, it can affect that shopper's reference price and lower it. So the way we can use this is that we have an opportunity, I think, to communicate the services that we offer against the services that everybody else offers, and this is kind of like a unique position in that, for the most part, okay tax dollars pay for this, tuition dollars pay for this, but the reality is that, like, for most users who are unaware of where their tax dollars are going, the things that we offer are free. Now, this is a pretty terrible mock-up in that, for whatever reason, I use, like, this bright neon blue background, so let me just read that. Um, It says at the top, everything is free, and the more you use the public library, the more you invest in the richness of the culture of this community. It was just kind of like a little, like, marketing blurb that I pieced together. But I continue because I use this in an article, so I meant for people to actually read this. But users often have a reference price in mind, and reminding them of the relative value of a library service, which is free-ish, can help institute loyalty not only to the local library but to the idea of libraries in general. Now, on the left, this um, is a kind of a gross wireframe at the top. I think that... I Let's pretend that that's some kind of, like, carousel or recent items that people can scroll through. And on the bottom, we have... Um, images or heavy visual elements that promote some of our newest databases or the databases that we need to push or other resources, right? And if you just think right now about the Gutenberg diagram, you know that the top left and the bottom right are the most valuable positions right here, as long as it remains above the fold. But the reason that relative value, I think, is important, Is because, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, that using the library, using library resources, is more complicated. Tends to be more complicated than using other services. It's easier to use Netflix. It's easier to use Amazon. I met my friend uh, Amanda Goodman from the Darien Library. Said that she sometimes thinks it's just more worthwhile to buy the ebook than use it through or then try and hunt it down and wait for it on overdrive. So communicating relative value might help offset the coming difficulty or the obstacles during this journey where the user starts on your page and has to actually use a product. Knowing that it's free might offset that cost. On the this public library website um, uses it, I think, pretty 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 fine, you know, so um, this is actually communicating the database to Lipser, but nowhere in there are we saying, like, hey, go use ho, oh, hey, go use Zinio. It's just magazines. You can now get all the information or all your magazines for free on your phone, your tablet, or in the browser with a login button. The Chattanooga Public Library does something very similar in um, the, the first screen in their carousel. Up here is promoting a free high school education. Again, communicating this relative value can be coupled with a trigger that I think is extremely important. I think you all have intimate knowledge of is this notion of scarcity. Like in social psychology, scarcity refers to the tendency for people to place a higher value on things that are really difficult to obtain. Lower value or a lower value on things that are common. So th- this this value can really, like, fluctuate as, as an item becomes more rare or, or not. So we in libraries, I think, can really take advantage of this with um, um, tactics that create a sense of urgency. We can motivate users to act by suggesting that, you know, an item is... A little bit more difficult to get. It. Now, this might not, this might push against some of our common sense notions that we have about making tons of resources available. But we've been doing this for a long time before we even been, before we were even even thinking about websites by having you know two or three copies of a popular book and then a hold list on the back end of that. And a more modern uh, take. Um, this is a room reservation application. This is kind of like, it's, it's accidental scarcity. Um, it was not designed with that word in mind. But what you see here is the day, Wednesday, November 4th, which shows that already, this is uh, this was early, this is before 8 in the morning, that already many of the rooms are, or many of the time slots for the rooms are reserved, and those rooms that are reserved through the whole day um, just fade into the background. So, what we found is that that communicating this, that this kind of this specific design pattern has done something interesting. So, like when someone walks in, they're going to look at it and they're going to be like, "Oh my gosh, um, shoot! My like I can't get room 2051 at 7 p.m. tonight, but I know I'm going to need it tomorrow, and I know I'm going to need it next week, and I know I'm going to need it." Uh, like a week after that. Now, we actually have, a, a like, a, a block on how many rooms you can have reserved at a given time, but what happens is that um, we now have this uh, group of power users um, who will immediately, as soon as a day becomes available to reserve, um, they'll start reserving the time slots for, the, for their needs. Um, so for the next two or three weeks, mo- many of these rooms are booked up, and they were booked two or three weeks ago. I thought, this doesn't actually exist, but I thought this was um, an opportunity where I should have um, um, kind of stepped in. I just didn't think about it. So recently, um, the library where I have my di- day job, we lost our subscription to the Chronicle of Higher Education. We're an academic library, um, but basically, as databases go, its use was fairly low, so we chose to drop it. We could no longer justify its cost. As soon as we lost it what happened was that okay a vocal minority or or whomever began like um like f- filling up our comment blocks and you know like talking to librarians because you know faculty and 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 alumni especially were distressed that at the point that they actually needed to get through the Chronicle of Higher Education's paywall, they could no longer do it upon discovery. So this outcry was such, and we were in a position where we responded to the outcry and we brought it back. Now, I think this entire situation could have been completely um, subverted if, knowing that we were going to drop the subscription, we just announced it where people saw it. So this is a little mock-up that I made that showed the Chronicle of Higher Education and then assume that someone who's better at blurbing things wordsmith this a little bit. But the idea is that, hey, we are going to lose the Chronicle of Higher Education because we don't think anybody's using it. So if the Chronicle of Higher Education is important to you, tell your friends. This does a couple of things that I think would have Changed it. If we could have communicated the fact that we're like whether we had to do it through newsletters or or whatever, or even taking an ad out, maybe that's not worth it. But um, if somehow we got it in front of people that hey, this resource is going away, then. Its use, I think, its use probably would have spiked, or we would have we would have had people comment saying, "Oh, please don't." But what we are doing is basically asking for use. Now, I failed for this presentation to pull together the research that shows that those of you who are familiar with um, Amanda Palmer um, and her TED Talk and her book um, and many others and the existence of Kickstarter and the existence of Patreon now know that often if you just ask for support. If you ask for use, if you if you if you just put it out there, a greater number of people than you suspected will take you up on that um, if it seems reasonable. So what this is describing is this uh, trigger called reciprocity. The tendency toward reciprocity is, I guess, like so it's supposed to be one of the key principles in just interacting in general. So when when you receive a gift. Perhaps you feel socially obligated to return the favor as a reward for the kind action, but it's more simply about trading favors than it is a, a negotiation. Um, favors are given freely, and usually there aren't specific terms set on the exchange. But these long-term, but like long-term relationships, you know, brand loyalty can form around this kind of reciprocal exchange. This give or take, giving time to help someone can be rewarded with a tangible gift, even money, um, giving free samples or free trials are marketing strategies that we have seen for ever. And what we're doing back here is we're asking people to use it, angling for a usage boom. Now, this is actually a fairly good test, because if you manage to get this in front of an, 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 enough eyes, but use remains low, or and you don't hear any verbal anecdotal feedback, then... This is a pretty good A-B test for determining that the database should go and that your money, your library's budget should be used elsewhere. This is um, a support page which asks. Like what it does is it plays on the sense of reciprocity that communicates what value it gives to the community and then asks for something in return. So um, the library is a seat of knowledge, culture, and community. The ongoing support patrons like you, determines what it is today and what it will be in the future, plus a bunch of options. Going back to the New York Public Library, we see this again, where they communicate value that says, hey, uh, we depend on support from generous individuals like you to fund collections, job search resources, access to the Internet, literacy classes, all these things that are super-duper-duper important for many reasons, and then they actually suggest a dollar figure. The New York Public Library and this, the Alvin Sherman Public Library, do a couple of things. I think the New York Public Library does it better, and I can say that because this one's mine. So what they're doing, not not by something intangible here, you know, as a seed of knowledge, culture, and community, but literally saying that what we do with your money is grow our collection that's given, but the job search. We help people get jobs. We help people who don't have access to the internet get the internet. We make pe- We make so that illiterate people can read. We provide programming for children to keep them off the streets, etc. You know, you fill in the blanks here. And what they're doing is something uh, is an actual trigger called appealing to values, which is different than communicating the relative monetary value of a product, um, and it's about reaching out to. Loosely defined sets of beliefs that people have or share, um, and these values guide decisions and actions, right? So, you know, our patrons want to know what our library stands for, and, you know, recent Pew research shows that they have an idea. But if we're able to emphasize our values and our social causes, we can make these values relevant to you know, the kind of things that we offer, and in so doing, we can act. This is a strategy for getting at that brand loyalty, getting at that um, patron champion who like for communicating the need for support, whether you actually need donations or support in the form of being vocal in local government. Now, this next slide kind of is sad because I have, maybe like some of you, I have a huge list of websites, library websites, that I like and I look at um, and I try to scan to see what people are doing. But um, while you see memes, I think, on Facebook and you see – and I think it's easy in Google to find a bunch of graphics that show libraries appealing to kind of like social or moral values – Like actual libraries doing this on their homepage doesn't, like, it's just really difficult to find, so I couldn't find an example. The closest was this Phil Bradley version of Rosie the River there that we can save our libraries, but I think this is pale in comparison to what is possible. And in fact, when we, um, when I showed this a couple of days ago, someone in the chat suggested that Rosie the Riveter makes her think about war and libraries associate with the military-industrial complex or something. So, you know, appealing to social and moral values can have an unwanted cost. <laughs> and we are going to leave it right there. About at this time, someone accidentally unmutes their mic and we catch a little bit of their conversation. And this is conveniently around the 30-minute mark, so I'm just going to cut it short. Next week, tune in to hear about using the opinions of your patrons' friends to compel them to an action, and for more this week, there's always a thought-provoking article at LibUX.co, a newsletter I write at the intersection of libraries and the cutting-edge web at um webforlibraries.com, and you can have the killer ad hoc team at LibUX come to your place of work, digitally or humanly. And help you level up your front-end architecting, user experience teams, or maybe even build you something cool. But until next week, thank you so much for listening. I will see you then. Bye.